0: what's up everybody hey welcome to the show my name is Tudor alexander and this is the dance of life podcast we are on part three of once saved always saved series this is the trinity in salvation um, if you haven't seen or heard any of the previous episodes i highly <laughs> encourage you to do that because um, this whole topic it's relatively controversial in in christian faith and christian theology and it's very hotly debated. There's a lot of information on it. So there's no way for me to fit all of the information into one episode. Uh, it would probably be several hours long. So this, as it is my notes right now, I think I'm going to have probably seven parts to this series, but we'll see how it goes. This is part three. We're talking about the Trinity and this, the context of this, if you're new, if this is the first one that you've seen, the context is the, the previous two episodes we set up, first off, that the man is just depraved by nature, that we cannot, we're not able to have saving faith in and of ourselves. And we went through scripture upon scripture, dozens of scriptures, lots of evidence. We even looked, I think it was over 30 something scriptures, but some of those scriptures were famous people in the Bible who, you know, Moses, uh, some of the judges, you know, David, all the people that we know, if you read your Bible, um, that struggled with serious doubts and kind of denied God, rejected God, you know, said, no, go find somebody else. And yet God still fulfilled his purpose in them. So those are another example on top of just the general teachings of the Bible that we cannot take the first step. That's number one. And number two, even if we could, we wouldn't be able to maintain it. Like if God actually responded to us and our free will, then none of us would be saved. And so ultimately this whole series Looks to give you some encouragement and some power in your faith because eternal security or once saved and always saved. Um, again, there, there there might be a difference there for me. There's no difference, and we we talked about that in the first episode. But eternal security is the greatest source of hope for us as Christians. I think it's one of the greatest hope because it's like okay, you know, I'm not doing the work, and that was the last episode, which is you know proof upon proof that God is doing the work both beforehand, meaning. And we're going to get more into this again. There's a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot to discuss. But he's doing the work beforehand, meaning in a predestined kind of way, he pre-planned it. He's doing the work to save you, right? The the point of first contact. He's doing the work to maintain you. And we're going to see more of that in this episode today. And he's doing the work of the future, meaning he's he's got everything planned out and set for us to arrive into that future. And so you're pretty much surrounded by God's work. And we, we looked at an article last episode, super cool, so fascinating. It was from the Christian Post. Um, it was about this guy who had an operation. It was a really crazy operation where they took out part of his brain, basically, uh, that was uh, responsible for memories. Now, this article... I swear, God just popped this into my lap because I was literally preparing for that episode. I think something like a few days beforehand I saw this article, so I'm like literally I would have never found this because it's such an obscure topic. But this guy basically lost all knowledge of his Christian life. And in some sense, you could say that would be argued like, well, is he saved if he doesn't know Christ anymore? Right? That's that's a, an interesting topic. Super interesting. Well, Lo and behold, if you read the article, and we kind of went over it, it, He after he had this operation, you know, obviously he completely forgot everything, and he ends up having a vision of Jesus, becomes born again, starts asking people, you know, about Christ, Jesus, and now, you know, many years later, he's an active member of the church that he's at. So that, to me, was just another cherry on the ice cream type of thing, where it's like, okay, God is doing the work. This is like now scientific evidence, not that I need scientific evidence, or I think that most Christians need that, but that is such a specific example that shows, listen, if God is purposed to save you, right, to to reveal himself to you, there's nothing you can do about it. And that's really important, because if we could lose our salvation, and again, this is the Calvinist perspective, but I don't personally like Calvinist versus Arminian, I think that ultimately, what the Bible teaches is eternal security, predestination, all these different things. I think there are several challenge passages, which we will get to, which seem to suggest that we have some sort of free will or impact on our salvation or, you know, our, our end result. But really, that's not the case. And we're gonna—I'm going to devote an entire episode to challenge verses, probably more than one, because there's uh, there's quite a few good challenges but they all have reasonable explanations, right? So in this particular episode, kind of going back to what we were talking about, which is this is going to be elaborating on part two, which was the previous episode, uh, on God doing the work. Now, first off, why does God need to do the work? Well, because man can't do the work. That's the whole point. We talked about the Amnesia article, and this this is more going to be kind of a deeper dive into how does God do the work? And why is this so important? Well, first off, God is triune, right? He's a he's a triune being. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And most Christians, you know, the Trinity is a very complicated topic, and we're not going to get too much into it today in, in the sense of seeing the basis for it and scripture and all that stuff, but we are going to get into how it works with several scriptural references. So here's the thing. When we look at God as a triune being, most people don't think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all being involved in salvation. But the reality is they are quite, you know, heavily involved. And, you know, we think of, okay, Jesus is our savior and he died for our sins. Yeah, we got that. You know, that's that's level 101, right? Christianity 101, Christ died for your sins. But it's so much more than that. And I think that if you if you understand the Trinity, nobody's gonna understand it completely, but if you really study the Trinity, let's put it that way. If you study the Trinity, there is not only a huge appreciation for God that you will get in in his plan for salvation, how it's all playing out, but it's also going to help you to see a lot of other things, like how to respond to challenges, to all these perspectives, right, to eternal security. Because I really genuinely feel, and I I hate to say this, but a lot of the people I've seen who say, oh, refuted, eternal security is quote-unquote refuted, It's not refuted, first off. And number two, why would you want to refute it since it's such a great hope for Christians? So I don't understand that part. But really what it shows is you don't understand the Trinity. And I'm going to make, that's a bold claim to make, but I'm going to put that out there, and I hope you'll stay with me because at the end, by the time we cover all this, you'll understand, hopefully, um, why I say that. Why I feel that people who say you can lose your salvation, that you don't know if you're saved, you know, these types of things. And again, it's Arminianism, but it's really just believing that you that your free will has some sort of impact on salvation, okay? So if you believe that, it, it shows that you don't really understand the Trinity because all three persons of the Trinity are involved in salvation. They're constantly involved from past, before time began to the end of time. Right, so we're going to look at that, and there's so much beauty to it. Um, now, the other thing is, once you understand this, you're also going to see how inconsistent the Armenian position is, which, again, Armenianism is believing that your free will has some sort of impact. It's, it's the common denominator, basically, in whether you get saved or not. So if you believe that, there are some really serious inconsistencies with the Trinity, now most Armenians are Trinitarians, so this is a big problem. Now, if they weren't Trinitarians, okay, you know that, that would make a little more sense in some in some sense. But ultimately, if you understand the Trinity, if you study the Trinity, you're going to see how inconsistent Armenianism is, and that's my goal today is to show you, without behind behind a shadow of a doubt, uh, that that's the case. Now I'm going to offer a couple disclaimers. Number one is that this episode is not about proving the Trinity. Okay, now the things we will go through, maybe they will prove it to you, right? I think it's enough proof, but I intend on making a whole series on this, but this is one of those things, again, that's not like you can just solve it in you know, one episode. I want to show from the Old Testament through the New Testament, all these different ways that we see the Trinity throughout the Bible. Okay, now people who don't believe in the Trinity... There's a lot of other problems with that too, and we're not going to get into that either. But if you don't believe in the Trinity, and you're watching this or listening to it, I invite you to pay attention to see how all this works, because Scripture doesn't lie. Scripture is very clear. It's consistent, and it does teach a Trinity, and it shows not only that, but the Trinity itself is involved in salvation. God is our Savior. But God, as our Savior, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all involved in different ways. And it's really beautiful. It really is. So I think ultimately that the Trinity is essential for understanding God's work and also eternal security. If you believe in eternal security, but you're you're kind of rough on the Trinity, I, I think this will be a real blessing to you. I hope it is, at least. Because ultimately the Trinity is necessary for justifying eternal security. And a lot of the challenges that people who are Arminians present against Calvinism. And again, to me, its I hate saying Calvinism. because I don't believe in Calvin. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in scripture. That's what scripture teaches. But that's what people know it by predestination, Calvinism. So ultimately, the Trinity is going to be a great resource for you to really understand how it works. And that's our goal. And now I've created a really cool handout at least I think it's cool. <laughs> I created a really cool handout that's like a study guide. It's a free study guide for you. Uh, I'm just going to leave it up. You can download it. It's, uh, you know, if you're listening to this, it's my website, danceoflife.com slash trinity. So danceoflife.com slash trinity. Just go there. You'll be able to download it. it the file's pretty big. It's about, uh, I think, 30-something inches by whatever. It's a poster size file, high definition. It's got scriptural references. If you're watching this, I'm going to probably put it on the screen, but we're going to work through that because it visually outlines the relationships, according to scripture, that each person has with each other, as well as what their roles are in salvation. And And we're going to look at each of those and how that works. And I want you to really develop, it's such a profound study, guys. You know, the Trinity is not something we'll ever fully understand, probably, but it is unique to Christianity. Christianity. And it answers so many questions. It fills in so many gaps. And it shows beyond a shadow of a doubt why eternal security is is real. It's true. That's what the Bible teaches. So let's let's get started with a couple verses. We we have in 1 Peter 1, 2. That's kind of you know where the Trinity is very obvious. So if you look in the, in the beginning, he says, Greeting, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Here we go. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, you know, this kind of also reminds me. We'll talk about all of this, but just let's let it marinate for a second. Look at Matthew 28, 19. So, Matthew, we'll start up a little earlier. And Jesus came to, and this is 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Beautiful verse. And, you know, these first two verses, when we talked about 1 Peter, uh, right at the beginning of the, the letter, and then also the baptizing in one name. I want you to start paying attention first and foremost that the baptism was in one name. Okay. It wasn't like Jesus's name only. And then, you know, somehow had father and son. It's all one name, the name of God, Yahweh. Right. So father is Yahweh. Son is Yahweh. Spirit is Yahweh. It's the name. It's one name, three persons. And when Peter opens his letter he talks about born again to a living hope and all these different wonderful things in that letter. The opening of the letter is so crucial because, and, and you're going to see how how crucial it really is, because it really, if there was one little paragraph <laughs> that shows how the Trinity is working in salvation, it would be this one. It's, it's like the most concise way of summarizing. According to, so this is 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so he's the one that foreknew it, predestined it, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So the Spirit's the one sanctifying us, right? Once we're born again. And for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Jesus was the one that lived the perfect life and died and paid the sin, uh, the price for our sins. So you see, all three of them had something that they were doing with this plan of salvation. And again, the more we, we flesh this out, we're going to really get into it. Uh, I, I truly hope you'll see the beauty of it. And and come out with a new appreciation for, for your own salvation and for our faith. I think it's just, it's so unique and beautiful. So we got those kind of motifs. You know, there's a lot of other ones that we might talk about, but I want you to see that the Trinity is a very obvious teaching in the New Testament. Now, some people say, and again, we're not going to, I'm not going to open this can of worms in this episode, but some people say, well, Trinity's never written anywhere. Okay, well, is omniscience written anywhere? Is self-existing written anywhere? How do you know that God is self-existing? It's not written anywhere. Well, yeah, but he said, I am who I am, and I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last. What does that mean? I'm the first. I'm not created. I'm the last. I'm going to live forever. So we th- we infer these things about who God is from Scripture. They're never written anywhere, but we anybody will agree that God is self-existing all-powerful, omniscient, none of those things are written word-for-word word in Scripture, right? So just because the Trinity isn't written Trinity doesn't mean that it it's not being taught, right? And especially in the New Testament, the New Testament was the fulfillment of a lot of the shadows and types and things that were going on in the Old Testament. Um, we, we start to see it in full bloom, and it's very out in the open and, and clear. Whereas the Old Testament, there's a lot of other things going on that that are like, probably intentionally a little gray so that we want revelation. And we were curious to see how does that work? And that's going to be a whole nother series. So that that's going to be a whole nother series. We'll get into it, but let's take a look. Let's start with the father, right? And actually, before we do that, I forgot to mention one thing And and you'll see this on the, on the Trinity graphic, but there is this idea of economic versus ontological Trinity. What does that mean? Okay. Ontologic ontology has to do with the study of being, right? How something is, what's the being of it. Economic trinity is function, like roles, okay? So a man and a woman, they have the same ontology. They're human beings, but they have different economy when it comes to whatever, life, the family, that kind of thing. Now, I'm not going to get into whole... Like, what's the role of a woman? No, we're not going to talk about that. But the point is, women can have babies. Men cannot have babies, right? There's a way that that flows, right? And that doesn't make women better than men, doesn't make men better than women. It's just there's different roles within the same ontology. Now, it's the same with the Trinity. There's three persons, one God. They are all co-equal and co-existing. How does that work in our tiny little human brains? We don't know, but that's what scripture teaches us, okay? And it's a fascinating study as we'll get into this, like I said. But besides that, the point is that there's economy, meaning there's there's different roles in the ways that things proceed, right? The Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. The Son is begotten by the Father, right? So there's there's different ways that they relate to each other, and it's it's really profound. Like I said, the more you study this, the more you realize, like, wow, everything makes so much more sense. Even though, like I said, the Trinity is something that's hard to understand. I don't think we can understand it fully, but it certainly explains a heck of a lot. So let's start with the Father, and you know, if we if we go, these aren't necessarily in order. They're not like in order of importance. They're not in order of, you know, uh, whatever of timeline or anything like that. They're just different actions that. The Father does, and the same with the Son and the Spirit. So if we look at the Father, and we jump to John uh, six forty four, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God the Father is drawing us to Jesus, and we're going to see how this makes sense with other things that are happening. Okay. If we go to, so just keep these, note them down, keep them in your in your back pocket. Next one is Isaiah forty six nine through ten. One of one of my favorite. Uh, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient t- times, things not yet done. Saying my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So the Father decrees. He declares the end from the beginning. He's predetermined reality, predestined, right? And if we look at the next verse, which is predestining, it's Romans 8.29. And these aren't the only verses, by the way. These are just highlighted ones that I I chose because they're a little more obvious. But Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, remember 1 Peter, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we're talking about the father now. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God the father foreknew and predestined. Okay, so he's electing. He's the one that elects and chooses. And we're going to find out why, because he's going to give it to the son as a gift. Now, the father also justifies. If we look in Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, talking about the Father, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then again, you know, Romans 30, he calls. So there's five things for this one. Draws, decrees, predestines, justifies, calls. And you know there could be other words you want to use. I chose to use these words because they, they highlight certain things, right? So if we look at all of them together... What what does the father do? He he foreknows, he predestines, he predetermines, he calls, he elects. We didn't put that on there, but, you know, you can infer it because there's other verses to support that, right? The elect, who's the elect? They're the chosen by God to be revealed the plan of salvation to, right? God calls us and he also justifies those who he called. If he's called you, he's justified you. Okay, so keep all this in mind because kind of almost keep two burners active. Keep this in mind, and on the other burner right next to it, (laughs) keep in mind this whole idea that, well, I can lose my salvation, or I can do something to lose my salvation. Keep that in mind, because if God the Father is drawing you, actively drawing you to the Son, He foreknew you, He predestined you, He called you, He justified you, And you can somehow do something to lose your salvation. So that doesn't jive. Now let's look at some other verses. Ephesians 1, uh, 1 through 6 is a good one. This is a letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful to Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, kind of a duality there to two persons within the plan of salvation. Blessed be the God... And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Think about that. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. He chose us and he predestined us for adoption. He predestined us. He chose us. He doesn't predestine like the opportunity that anybody who comes to Christ can be saved, because that also means that if you made the one if you made the move to come to Christ and, you, and it's all on you, that it's your faith, you had faith, then you can also make the move away from Christ. And we're going to get to, I I want to jump into it now, but I won't. I'm going to resist temptation. We're going to get into this. It makes absolutely no sense. Let's look at the next one. 1 Corinthians 2, uh, verses 7 through 8. This is wisdom from the Spirit. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, what does that mean? This is the gospel. God, God decreed this wisdom, the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of salvation. He decreed it before time began. This wasn't like a response to what happened in Eden. This was all planned out. And we're going to keep weaving these threads together. You see how beautiful it is at the end. Let's look at Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Now, this is the context here really quick. Simon just acknowledged. So if you look at verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And Jesus' response is very interesting. Very interesting. As usual, all of his responses are interesting. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now that's, I mean, that's it. First off, the Father's revealing the Son, which is, you don't have, I think this is the only verse that I've found that's really obvious about it. Because most of the time, it's the Son revealing the Father, which is interesting, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But this is, A situation where we see the Father has revealed to you that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is divine. He's God. You wouldn't have been able to see flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Your free will, your own weak flesh and heart could have never revealed that to you, to believe that the living God became man and is in the flesh right in front of you. But the Father revealed that to you. So, Keep all these in mind. This was the Father. Let's let's jump to the Son. And obviously, you know, most Christians, we focus on Christ, Christ divinity. I say most because there are a lot of cults out there too. But let's look at the Son. Let's start with Matthew 11, 27, which is what we were just talking about, revealing, revealing the Father. This is uh, 11, 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except, except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So now we have the son choosing to reveal the father and having sort of this, this again, this duality of of relationships and things that are going on. The father's revealing the son, the son's revealing the father. How does that work in its entirety? Who knows? But there's, there's movement there. There's a relationship. There's things going on between the two persons of the Trinity. And, and this is really important because the Son has his role, too, in revealing. The Father's job, he's doing certain things. The Son is doing certain things. If we look at uh, John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So when Christ returns, he's going to sit on his throne. He's going to judge the world. That's, that's the completion of the plan of salvation. And, and Christ is ending that with his judgment, both for non-believers and for believers, which is the Bema judgment. So again, different roles, right? It's not the father that's sitting down to judge. It's the son that's sitting down as king to judge. Different roles. John 1, 29. Again, these aren't in order, but uh, Christ atones. Behold the Lamb of God. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, this was John the Baptist, and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you know, there's so much in this uh, in this verse, but John is recognized John the Baptist is recognizing Jesus as the, the types that were set in the Old Testament. We won't get too much into this because it's a whole another topic. But the types that are set in the New Testament or the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, with you know having no blemishes on the Lamb, the sin offerings, there are so much there's so much typology when it comes to that and Jesus and that that's what this is all about the lamb of god the perfect lamb that, that can actually atone for sins for everybody sin forever right and so what does that mean about jesus's role in salvation that he's the one atoning for the sins he's the one doing the work in terms of paying the debt right he came as a human being he died he rose again he paid the debt on the cross forever once and for all now let's let's keep going john 6:39 And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the father's given him. So if we go up a couple verses that to John uh, 6, verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, which is another wonderful text for eternal security. But the point of this is, what does the father do? Remember, he's, predestining, calling, justifying. He's laying all the groundwork. He's also drawing people to Christ. He's revealing, right? So, but but in this context, the Father has given him the elect. He's given Christ the people that will love him. This is the grand plan playing out. It's not about God glorifying himself as one person. It's about the Father and his love for the son and glorifying the son. And the son having indescribable love for the father and obeying what the father gave him through this plan to have a people of his own that will love him, have a kingdom of his own that he will be king over. I mean, it's, it's really just quite profound. It's it's a relational thing that we're involved in. And this is why the Trinity is so important because the father gave the elect to the son. The son says, I'm gonna keep these elect." Read that again. And this is the will of him who sent me. Is, is Christ going to obey his father? Yes, he is. 100% he's going to obey the father. Even in Gethsemane when he was praying, like, Dad, is there any other way? Nevertheless, your will be done. Okay, so Christ is going to 100% obey the father. This is the will of him who sent me, who sent him, the father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All the elected have been given to Christ and that the Father's drawing to Christ, all that stuff. Christ is going to keep that. That's the will of the Father. I'm going to give you these and my will is that you keep them. That's a really important point. It's not, I'm going to give you these. I've predestined to give you these, but you can do whatever you want with them. You see, that doesn't teach... That would God is one God. So there can't be discord in the Trinity. And this is what we're going to get to at the end of this talk. But there can't be discord between the persons of the Trinity. If, if God the Father says, hey, I'm going to give you all these that I've chosen so they can be your people and you can be their king. And the son's like, okay, well, you know, I might let some of them go if they're, if they're too, you know, crazy or whatever. That doesn't work that way. <laughs> there, there's a way that things work. The father gives, the son keeps, and he keeps everything Okay, so, so that's really important. So, so far, the Son reveals the Father. The ju- The Son judges on Judgment Day. The, the Son atones for our sins. The Son keeps. That's really important, keeps. And the last one is intercedes. So, Hebrews 7.25, and this is not the only, again, these aren't the only verses. They're just good ones, I've found. So, Hebrews 7.25, all of Hebrews... Remember the context of Hebrews is written to Hebrews <laughs> that are kind of on the fence with Christ. And so Hebrews is just a massive hall of typology of how Christ fulfills the scriptures, how hey all those things that we did they were just shadows of Christ, like Christ is the one who's fulfilling these things. And so you find a lot of good stuff there, but you know again this is one of one of many. Hebrews 7:25. Consequently, this is talking about um, high priest. So if you look at, actually, let's go a little bit earlier. Uh, the former high, this is seven, chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood per- permanently because he continues forever. That's the whole point. He lives forever so he can, for, consequently, here we go, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he lives forever, and he can intercede for us constantly because he lives forever. Now, this is there's also another little detail in here. He is able to save to the uttermost. Two details, actually. That's the first detail. Those who draw near to God through him. Who's drawing you? The Father is drawing you. Can you resist the Father? I don't think so. Not if he's chosen to draw you. On top of that, can you resist Christ saving you to the uttermost? Now, is this verse about those who draw near to God through him? So, like those who draw near to God because of their own faith? Is that—is that what this is saying? And then Christ is able to save them for the uttermost? No. Those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, Who's drawing you to Jesus? The Father's drawing you. The Father's revealing the Son to you as well. And we'll see, we haven't even gotten to the Spirit, but they're all working together. You're shielded, and you're guided all along. You're being carried through this life. That's the whole point. I mean, this is as clear as day to me. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost. Like, it's not save up until a point. (laughs) No, it's save to the uttermost. So the Son reveals the Father. He atones for our sins. He judges. He keeps what he's been given. And he intercedes. Big, big stuff. Let's look at some other verses. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, uh, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was... um, I believe the tax collector, Zacchaeus. So the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Well, who are the lost? Now we're going to get, there's a whole fascinating episode we're going to have. I don't know if it's going to be next one or the one after that, but it's coming up. It's going to be on the parables of Jesus and how most of them, I would say most of them, have to do with election, eternal security, and all this stuff that we're talking about. And I, I bet you'll never see them the same way again after checking in to see how we're going to talk about that. Because there's like, for example, this, I came to save the lost, right? Came to seek and to save the lost. The lost doesn't mean you're just lost. You know, you're, you're kind of super wicked and whatever. I mean, everybody's wicked, but the point is you, you are lost because you were at one point owned. You were there, the prodigal son. We're not going to get into this all the way, but the prodigal son was he just some guy off the street that became a son? No, he was the son. And then at some point he fell, right? He fell from grace. He went away and then he came back. The lost sheep is the same thing. The The sheep that went missing, it wasn't like Christ, the shepherd in this case, found a sheep and said, oh, you must just be a lost sheep in the desert. Well, come, come into my flock. I'll take care of you. No, <laughs> the lost sheep belong to the flock. It got lost and then it gets rescued. The lost coin. It's another parable. Did did the woman find a coin on the on, that was just randomly there that somebody else had lost? And she said, Oh, I'm gonna keep a coin. There we go. No, she found her coin, the coin that belonged to her. Okay, so you gotta you gotta look at this and see that this what does it mean when it says lost sheep? It doesn't mean random sheep in the desert. It means you belong to the flock. You were the elect. And we all are. We were predestined, meaning we were part of the flock. We were born in sin, so we fell from grace. And we're born again. We were redeemed. Right? It's the same thing. So, you know, if you look at, for example, John 10, 27, these all go together. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Right? So, Christ's sheep know their voice. When when we're told to proclaim the gospel, it's very important why the word proclaim is used. When you go out and tell somebody about the gospel, most people are going to be resistant to it because it's completely contradictory to the culture and to the world. It's a stumbling block. It's a stone of offense. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, right? So ultimately, the people who are chosen by God will respond differently than the people who are not. The people who are chosen by God will hear Christ's voice. When they read the Bible, they're hear, they'll hear God's voice through the Bible. They'll hear the Holy Spirit narrating to them, or Christ speaking when he's is speaking his words. So, the sheep hear his voice. Whose sheep? My sheep, as in the ones that I've been given, the ones that I'm going to keep, the ones that I'm not going to lose. Not some random sheep in the desert, but the ones that have been decided for me and I'm keeping that whole thing. Now, here's an important point about Christ interceding as high priest. And again, keep all these in mind, man. We're going to come back to it and uh, (laughs) you'll just see how ridiculous this whole Arminianism thing is. Um, John 11 chapter 11 41 through 42 let's look at we'll look at two of these verses and then we'll come back so so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said father i thank you that you have heard me this is about lazarus pay attention to this one i knew that you always hear me but i said this on account of the people standing around that they <clears throat> excuse me man this voice is just killing me if you are new then you don't know about my voice issues. I've lost my voice earlier this year. So it's been, <laughs> it's been a journey. Okay. It's coming back. Praise God. Uh, verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So, okay, let's go to the next one and then we'll talk about it. John ten thirty. I and the father are one before that. Let's look at look, my sheep, hear my voice. We were just talking about that. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because Jesus keeps them. My Father, who has given them to me, there we go, is greater than all. No one can is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So I and the Father are one. He's given me, I'm going to keep them. Uh, you always hear my prayers, Father. What does that say to you? Does that say to you that Jesus' prayers are kind of heard all, you know, only on Tuesdays? Like, No, they're heard all the time. Everything that Jesus asks of the Father, it's done. That's why he's the perfect high priest, because he lives forever, and he's, he's God, first off, and he can ask the Father whatever on our behalf, and he, he can intercede for us perfectly. So this is really important because if Christ is interceding for you, okay, let, let's let's think about this. Think critically and, and openly. If Christ is living to intercede for you, if that's his purpose, at least for the time being, until he comes back, and his prayers are always answered, he's got a perfect relationship with God, the Father cannot deny Christ, the Father listens, you know, listens to Christ's prayers for us, intercedes for us. Do you? And, and Christ is going to keep everything the Father gives him. <laughs> Don't forget that. That's an important detail. Very important. One plus two plus three, A plus B plus C. Does that equal that you can lose your salvation? Are you still going to say, "Yeah, well, you know, Christ is doing all that, and yes, his per, his prayers are perfect, and he's going to keep everybody the Father's given him, but." You you can still lose your salvation. Uh, Wrong answer. You're not being honest with Scripture. And you're not understanding the, the full weight of the Trinity on the plan of salvation. So let's look at another one John 16, 7. And this is about the atonement. So, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Christ completed the atonement on the cross. But then, you know, when he ascends, he he sends the Holy Spirit. And it's because the fact that he leaves, that the Spirit can now come and, and guide them. And there's a very interesting part of that. First off, he's going to intercede for us. So he, he the, the Trinity is changing. You see, it's shifting. It's not shifting in ontology. It's shifting in economy, in roles. If Jesus was there physically, he it has to be the Spirit. Do you see how that works? If Jesus was there physically, they would be like, oh gosh, what do we do? What do we do? They wouldn't learn to have a relationship with the Spirit. Right? Jesus had to ascend also so he could intercede for us. And, and prepare a house for us and all, all the things that he's doing. So there's constantly roles shifting. It's all it's a beautiful plan. But he's completed it. He, he moves on. The Spirit comes. And now it's the responsibilities have shifted a little bit. Again, co-equal persons. No one is more important than the other. They're all God, the same God, one God, three persons, different roles. So now let's look at the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, John 6, 6, 3 this is uh, 63 it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life the spirit is the one who gives life now there's so much gosh i mean you could probably do a whole study just on this but we'll look at a few things so first and foremost remember in genesis how did how did it happen god made adam out of the earth the dust and he breathed into him the breath of life. Remember, sh- shadows and types. Okay. John 20, verse 22. And if we look at, uh hold on it's like this thing's not working. Here we go. Okay, verse 20, 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So before that, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is when, you know, at the end of Jesus's time on earth, wrapping things up, he's sending the apostles. So what did he do here? This is a mimic or a type or a fulfillment. Not a mimic, I shouldn't say mimic, it's not a good word, but it's a fulfillment of what happened in Genesis. Genesis was the first creation. When he breathed on them the Holy Spirit again, how many thousands of years later, They became new creations in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit is what helps us get born again. It gives us a new heart and new spiritual life comes from the Spirit. Just like Spirit gave life to Adam and gives physical life to us as well. So let's look at a couple more. This is really interesting. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation all of this did it say some of this is from God but the rest is all on us <laughs> you, you got to be honest with scripture man all this is from God who through Christ reconciled who did the work who did the work there who reconciled us? God. All of this is from God. What is all of this? It's describing what happened before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is in new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're born again, it's from God. It's not that God said, "Let this," you know, that anybody who chooses to be born again, you know, this is what's going to happen for them. No, it's I have decreed that you know the elect will will be born again. They'll get new hearts, and and this is seen throughout Scripture. We're going to go into it. Look, look at earlier at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And so, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Again, it's that typology. that The Ten Commandments, an external representation of the law, was a type for the new covenant, right? Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, the new covenant for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Declares. He's not just saying, you know, I think I'm going to do this. When God says something, he's also prophesying it. He's creating reality. You got you to gotta think from the big picture. We can't imagine the mind of God, but we can kind of try to put ourselves there in that picture. When he says something, it's a prophecy. I've said this before. Like when Jesus says to the apostles, follow me, he's not saying, hey, like, gosh, I hope like, and he, he's not saying, oh gosh, man, I hope they, I hope they say yes. <laughs> no, he's like commanding. Basically, he's like, look, you're going to follow me and you will be transformed. Right? So when God says something, he's declaring it. So for this is the comment that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now let's look at how that happens in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So let's, let's look at one more and we'll add all these up together. Saul, which is going to be a whole case later on. When we get to challenge verses, <laughs> this is like, you got to be Sherlock Holmes with the case of Saul. I, I'm going to argue that he is saved. There's a lot of contention on this because Saul was a bad boy. He did. A, he made a lot of mistakes, but I'm going to argue still that he saved. And I think it's a fascinating topic. We're not going to get to that in this episode, but look, look at what it says here. One Samuel chapter 10, verse six, then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Okay, now when these, things, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave, Samuel, this is Saul, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. So what, what do we take from all of these that we just covered? Okay. The Spirit is what's giving you a new heart. Throughout the Old Testament, God says, I'm going to put my Spirit in you. I'm going to put my Spirit on you. It's, and then in the New Testament, that's fulfilled. We get the Holy Spirit. Because one thing in the Old Testament was the Spirit didn't wasn't just willy-nilly given for free. Even with people like David or Saul which is a great example, the spirit was given and then sometimes it was taken away. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved, but the spirit, which is like the benefits, the favor, all these things, that was taken away. It wasn't given forever. Because Christ is perfect, we can now be given the spirit for free forever, which is huge. That fulfills what was happening in the Old Testament in these little shadows that we saw where God gave people a new heart through the spirit. So the Spirit gives life. He gives life physically, like we saw in Genesis. But more importantly, he gives life spiritually, through the new birth, through the new creation of the new heart, writing the laws on our hearts. We get a new conscience. We get a revitalized conscience. We get the ability to to seek after God, which we can't do before we're born again, or unregenerate is the fancy theological term. And let's look at one more, forgiving life. I want you to see how all this comes together. <laughs> it's, it's really beautiful, honestly. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. This is talking about different gifts and talents. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Which, by the way, if you were going to prove the Trinity, here's a proof text for you. A force, an impersonal force, doesn't have a will. So who apportions to each one individually as he wills? Now there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff on this, especially in the Old Testament, where God, um, like in Exodus, Leviticus, where they're talking about building the the tabernacles and, and just various things. There's a lot of stuff where God says to Moses, like, "Hey, I've put my spirit in such and such person. Don't worry, they're going to be super talented and, and great at making all these, you know, metal works and you know things that we need. They're very art- artistic." So God it's so that's a type for this which is now the spirit is giving being given freely to believers and because of that we also have gifts they're activated some people prophesy some people are teachers some people are you know preachers some people you know do work for the poor we all have different gifts and that's from the spirit who the spirit apportions as he wills right now is that will going to be in alignment with the father and the son? Of course. It's one God, one will. But it again, it's just that that mystery of how does three persons in one work? But they each have different roles. And the spirit is able to to do all those things, right? Now that Christ is interceding, he's in heaven, the spirit is here on earth handling all these things, right? Let's if we just got one done with one. Let's look at the rest of them. Sanctifies so 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Stand firm. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits. God chose you, remember that, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the Spirit sanctifies us. He gives us a new heart. And so that's the initial point of salvation. When you're born again, and then he's sanctifying you actively. Why? Because we're being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the will of the Father. To be conformed to the image of Christ was predestined. We will be like Christ. Now it's not going to happen in this lifetime. That's why you have eternity. Christ is perfect. But the Spirit is sanctifying us and helping us be better, helping us love one another better, helping us, you know, tell the truth more often, helping us, you know, deal with certain sins that we, we used to be slave to, now we're not. Right, so the Spirit is sanctifying us. Let's look at John fourteen twenty six. The Spirit guides, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Another powerful role of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that is bringing to our attention, you know, scriptures. Like when you when you're faced with a tough situation, I don't know about you, but in my mind now, I'm finding like, oh man, I just immediately that scripture just comes to my mind. About something, and he gives me ideas, promptings from the Holy Spirit. Right? He gives us discernment, like when somebody's preaching something or teaching something that's that's not in line with God's Word. The Spirit's going to remind you God's Word and say, "Hey, that's not right." Right? Guided by the Spirit, so the Spirit is the Helper. He's the guide. He's the teacher. He's helping us in fulfilling that sanctification role. So, very important. He's guiding us, and he's sanctifying us. Let's let's look at the next one, uh, seals, because the, the last one I want to talk about is convicts, and that's that's another can of worms. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, Ephesians 1, chapter 13 through 14. Or, sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Get this who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is so important. So the Holy Spirit seals us. But what, what is the seal? Well, it's sealed, like, does the, can you break the seal? Let's put it that way. People who think you can lose your salvation, you're saying basically that you can break that seal. When somebody is truly saved, And the Spirit has sealed you, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. What inheritance? Well, what Christ is preparing for us in heaven, the promised land, right? The the final existence that we're going to have. He goes to prepare a house for us. So our inheritance, as children of God, we all have an inheritance, whatever that may be. The Holy Spirit in this life, who is guiding us, sanctifying us, teaching us, you know, comforting us, being there for us—that's the guarantee. That's like God saying, "Here, you know, here's a guarantee that I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull through on this." That's a guarantee. That's like when you give something when you're about to buy a house and you put money down. Of course, I'm not trying to compare money to the Holy Spirit, but you know, worldly metaphors are are not perfect, but they can be helpful. When you when you put money down on a house, that's it. You, you've you if you forfeit, if you back out, you lose the money. Okay. Now God's perfect. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't regret things. He doesn't you know lie. He doesn't do any of that. So if he's going to say, "I'm going to give you a guarantee for your inheritance, down payment," here's the Holy Spirit as proof that I'm serious about this do you really think you can lose your salvation? It's nonsense. So that's seals. So, so far, what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit gives life. He helps us be born again, transforms our heart from within so we can actually follow God and and seek God's face. He gives us gifts and talents that we can pursue to, to to praise God, to glorify God, to live a godly life. He sanctifies us right, the whole journey of sanctification in this life, of becoming more like Christ. He guides us, teaches us, reminds us things, gives us discernment, comforts us, and he seals us. He's the down payment. He's proof that God is not going to back away from his offer or his choice, let's put it that way, not an offer. Because God doesn't offer salvation. This is, this is the thing. This is like 101 to me. God is not God of salvation because he offers salvation. That would be meaningless because we we cannot pull through. You saw from the first episode how many people throughout history have responded to God poorly, even the ones that he chose. If God had responded back to them and said, well, I guess your free will kicked in and you just, you just don't have faith, so I'm going to have to find somebody else. If that was the case, God would never have found anybody because there is nobody who could pull through through challenges on their own. Moses had doubted God countless times. Peter denied Christ three times. Is Peter in heaven? Yeah. (laughs) Right? So it's because Peter was chosen. And if you're chosen, God's going to give you a guarantee. He's going to give you a down payment. He's going to make sure that it's sealed and done and delivered, man. Are you going to struggle with stuff? Yeah. But that's, you know, there's a whole, we'll talk about that. So the last point on this is convicts. Okay, and this is this is a super important part of this as well. So John sixteen eight, which is it's a big verse. You know, Christ is talking about what's happening, what's gonna happen when he leaves and, and the Holy Spirit comes. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay, this is, this is a huge verse because there's a lot going on in here. So number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Now, what sin specifically? The sin of not believing in Christ. Now, th- th- let's unpack this because it doesn't mean the whole world and everybody's has a chance to be saved and all that stuff like that. So what does this actually mean? Well, first off, if you believe in election, there are the elect and there are the unelect. Most people are unelect. We don't know who is elect or not, because there are false converts. But the point is that there's going to be more people in heaven or more people in hell than in heaven. I think everybody can agree to that. So there's more people that are elect than non-elect. So when we proclaim the gospel to people who are elect, but they haven't been born again, right? So they're, they're like little seeds waiting to sprout. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're not trying to convert them. We're proclaiming it. If they're elect, they will be convicted of sin, which is of sin of non-believing in Jesus, and repent and see the truth. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is. It's to, to bring that repentance and change of heart. Okay, most people are going to reject it. That's Those are reprobate, and we're going to get into that in the next one, in the next topic, which is going to be on predestination reprobation. So, the Holy Spirit convicts the three roles, right? He convicts the world of sin, of not believing in Jesus. Now, here's how you know this is about the elect and non-elect. Now, without even having to, to review any other verses, do the reprobate, care about being saved? No, they don't. The people who end up in hell never once cared about being saved. They never once cared about Christ. They never once cared about pleasing God. They never feared God. Because if they did, they would have been elect. It would have been led to repentance. You see how that works? So when he says convicts the world of sin, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit just fighting, you know, and and trying to convict everybody and trying to get as many people to Christ as possible. No, that's not what's happening. The world is everybody, but it's the people who are elect and the people who are unelect. The people who are elect will be convicted of sin and of, of not believing in Jesus. And wow, I that's the truth. Let me repent. The people who are unelect, are they going to be convicted? No. To be convicted is to have to feel something in your heart, to have a change of heart, to feel the blame. The people who are unelect, they don't care. They don't feel the blame. Now the next part is something we want to expand upon, is, is that you know there's this sense of godly grief, which is found in 2 Corinthians uh seven, verse 9. And it says. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. There it is again. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So, so even our grief <laughs> to repent is a godly grief. You know, having grief is important. It leads you to repentance. Having fear is important if it's fear of God, not fear of, you know, man or wanting man's glory. So these things are from God. The Holy Spirit is there to convict the elect who haven't been born again. Remember, when you're elect, God chose you before time. Then what happens? You come into time through your birth. Are you born again when you're a baby? No. You live your whole life. Sometimes you fall away, you come back. I mean, there's everybody has their own life to live. But if you're elect, there is a point in time after you're born, which is you're born in sin, that you are born again. Right? And that's when you repent. That's when you have that change of heart, when you have a new heart, when the Holy Spirit acts on you and convicts you of sin. And not of sin like any sin, but the sin primarily of not believing in Jesus and realizing he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the second part is having to do with believers only. And it's convicting of righteousness, and this is this is a very interesting concept, and it's very important. It's very important because it has to do with eternal security. So, righteousness—what does righteousness mean? Well, we are righteous in the eyes of God because Christ paid for our sins. Christ is perfect; He gave us a robe that you know of perfection that we can wear, that we can be seen as perfect in. The eyes of God it's a righteousness we do not deserve but we can we can have that righteousness that's the whole point that's to his glory and to his generosity and his love that we have that righteousness so when it says the Holy Spirit will will convict us of righteousness let's look at that again John 168 he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment verse 10 concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will, you will see me no longer. And this is really important. What's happening here? Well, Christ is leaving. The apostles are like, what? No, I can't believe you're leaving. You know, like That's pretty scary. They just had this whirlwind of a ride, realizing that God came in the flesh. Can you imagine? And now he's leaving. <laughs> It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. am, am I okay? Like, are things going to be okay? Am I saved? Am I going to do Am I going to lose my salvation? Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will convict you of righteousness. Now, this is a very interesting juxtaposition of words because normally when we think of conviction, we think of, you know, like convicting uh, someone or feeling convicted of something bad that you did. This is being convicted of something right, something good. He reminds us that we're righteous. How often do you get on yourself and say, God, yeah, you know, I, I made that same mistake, or I did this again, and you know, God doesn't love me, or you know, God's not answering my prayers because I'm so sinful, or whatever else. You know, we get on ourselves, and the Holy Spirit's job for believers, after He's convicted you of sin and you've repented and you've been born again, now He's convicting you of righteousness. Isn't that something? He's got you on both ends of the of the stick, man. He's convicting you of righteousness. We aren't, look, we aren't doing works for righteousness, right? As Christians, we are righteous because of Christ. Are we perfect? No, we're not perfect people, but we're righteous in God's eyes. That's it. It's, it's a legal standing. Your sins are forgiven. You're no longer under judgment. We're in other words, we're not sinners trying to do good. We're righteous people struggling with sin. Okay. We're not sinners under God's wrath trying to earn his favor, which is what Armenians ultimately lead to. Nobody's going to admit that because it's not in a pretty position to admit because it's not Christian. But that's what it really ultimately leads to. If you're saying you can lose your salvation, that means you have to work to maintain it. If you have to work to maintain your salvation, guess what? Your salvation is based on you, and it's based on work. You are not listening to the Holy Spirit. This is the job of the Holy Spirit, to convict you of righteousness. You are righteous in God's eyes. Why? Why is that his job? Well, let's look in Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, there goes back to that inheritance, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit testifies that we are children of God, that we, that we deserve an inheritance, that we deserve, of course, we don't deserve that, but Christ deserves it, and he's imputing that righteousness and that worthiness in some sense to us. And, and Another one to consider is this, 2 Timothy, popular verse, 1, verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us a spirit of power, which is confidence. How do you think all the early church martyrs were able to do what they they did? How do you think some of the Old Testament, you know, uh, like Shadrach, Abednego, Meshach, where they were in, thrown into a, an oven <laughs> and God came after them. How do you think all these people did what they did? did they think, do you think they thought they could lose their salvation? No. They knew that God was faithful through and through till the end, right? And so ultimately what it comes down to is we have a spirit of power, which is confidence. Go boldly forward because you're, you're saved, there's nothing you can do to mess that up. So go, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for, work out what you've been given. Go, like take it by the horns and go full on. We've also been given a spirit of love, meaning we have a spirit of love, meaning we have the ability to do good. We have the a new heart and we have self-control, meaning we have the ability to turn away from sin. None of these things are possible without the spirit of God. And that's why it is impossible to have saving faith of yourself god has to light the fire he has to give you the spirit and if he's giving you the spirit he's chosen to do it now the spirit also is in charge of our conscience and it remind he reminds us that we were bought for a price and this is a great verse to keep in mind 1 corinthians 6 verse 20 or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you this is verse 19 whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought for a price. The spirit, once once you're born again, the spirit is, is convicting you back and forth. On one hand, it's convicting you of righteousness. Reminding you, listen, don't beat yourself up. You're not gonna, you know, the devil's job is to condemn you. Okay, this is why the spirit, we have the spirit to give us that assurance of salvation. The devil's going to try to make you feel like you're condemned. You did something wrong. Oh, you lost your salvation. See, you worthless sinner. The Spirit's just that. you know that that voice is not from anywhere but evil when you hear that in your head. Because the Spirit's job is to convict you of righteousness. He's, He's there to remind you, listen, like Christ was perfect. Stop thinking about yourself and remember to put your eyes on him. He did the work. You're good. You're sealed. I am the guarantee of your inheritance. I'm here with you. Remember? But on the other hand, he's also there to convict us and, re- and remind us that we were bought for a price. Right? So, you know, feeling righteous, like self-righteous, when when you're doing sin, you're not feeling bad about that. Well, that's that's not right either. That means there's something amiss. So the Spirit is there to convict you through your conscience when you sin. Because when you have a new heart, you don't want to keep sinning. This is why, again, once saved, always saved to me is the same as eternal security. When you're truly saved, you don't want to keep sinning. You don't want to keep doing the things you were doing. So to say that you'll lose your salvation, it just, it's not in alignment with what actually happens when somebody is saved. There's a lot of false converts, and we're going to get into that. And a lot of people who look from the outside, see, oh, once saved, always saved, it's refuted. No, it's not. Those people were never truly saved. They never had a change of heart. Because if you do, the Spirit is with you. He's interceding. He's your guarantee. You're being convicted. You have the ability to do good. I mean, come on. How many other things we have to list? There's no way. There's absolutely no way that you could lose your salvation. And the final thing is convicting the world of judgment, which there's a lot of interesting things, with this, but it's to me, the thing that stands out is this again it's convicting the elect that people who are not elect and reprobate they could care less they don't care about god but it's convicting us that the world is judged what does that mean what does it mean that the world is judged that there is a final judgment that christ will come back well it means a lot of things first and foremost there's the end of evil it's the end of the world it, it, there's a hope for the future it also reminds us to prepare to stay vigilant to not get so attached to the world God is saying through this, look, I've set a definite end to this timeline. And you and the Holy Spirit will convict you of that so that you act accordingly. This is not going to go on for millions and millions of years like reincarnation teaches. Like, oh, you're just going to reincarnate for whatever, infinite amount of time. That's a lie. It's a lie on purpose because it distracts you from the truth, which is there's a definite end. If there's a definite end, we have to prepare. We have to stay vigilant We have to understand the end times. We have to, you know, cling to Christ, share the gospel, proclaim the gospel. We have a hope for the future, right? So the end is necessary as a way to to wrap everything up. And, And the Holy Spirit will convict you of that. So as you can see, guys, the Holy Spirit has several roles. He gives life. He sanctifies. He guides. He convicts in several ways, He's actively participating in your life, and he seals. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, a couple more verses, and we're going to jump into some quick discussion. 1 John 5, 7 through 10. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son the spirit testifies to god and the spirit testifies to jesus christ specifically unless you have the spirit you cannot confess jesus christ as lord and savior now there's a lot of false converts who join the church who get baptized and you know they go to all these worship songs and not that there's that much wrong with those things if they're done correctly. But ultimately, there's a lot of false converts who feel that the Holy Spirit is some sort of experience. Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is a new awareness. Okay, it's a new awareness. It's an awareness of your sin. You repent. It's an awareness of Christ as the truth. It's an awareness of a new heart and new desires and new feelings. It's not... I went to a church service and I felt really good. It's not, I really like being a Christian because I have a lot of Christian friends. That's not the Holy Spirit. I mean, it may be, but it's not, it doesn't go both ways. Make sense? And so ultimately, this is where people get hung up because there are a lot of false converts. Let's look at Romans eight twenty six. Likewise, the Spirit is the last one. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So profound. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. By the way, another proof text. The Spirit has a mind. So, anybody who says there's no Trinity. They're just not reading enough scripture. But ultimately, what does it say? The Spirit helps us pray. We don't know what to pray for. Even with all that stuff going on, if Father's drawing, electing, choosing, the Son is atoning, interceding for us, the Spirit is guiding us, he's, he's sealing us. We still don't know what to pray. That's how pathetic we are. So the Spirit has to kind of intercede for us, helps us pray. He helps us in our weakness right we don't know what to pray for but he's there to help us okay so now now that we have all this set up this grandiose setup now the million dollar question if the father is doing all that work father's predestining drawing calling justifying if the son's completed the atonement and ascends to pray for you actively and his prayers are perfectly answered if the spirit seals you until the final day and he's sanctifying you and he's guiding you and convicting you, making sure you don't go off the deep end, can, is that not enough to keep you saved? Be honest with yourself. Is that not enough to keep you saved? When the entire Trinity is doing all that, all that work simultaneously, simultaneously, You see, this is why the Trinity is so important. This is why the Trinity is so important. And and people who don't study the Trinity enough, they don't understand how inconsistent their position is when they say that you can lose your salvation. Because ultimately, there's discord in the Trinity, if this is the case. Let's think of it this way. Okay, so with the Father let's look at how there's discord in each person. For the Father, what it means is, if there's no election, and it's all up to our free will to come to God and, you know, activate the salvation, what that means is the Father loves even those that he knows will reject Christ. Because he knows everything. He foreknows. But if salvation's for everybody... If the offer's on the table for everybody, the father knows who's going to end up rejecting Christ. And that means the father still loves those people enough to like be patient for them and say, gosh, you know, no, not at all. That doesn't make sense. Why would the father love anybody who he knows is going to reject Christ? The only way to answer that is through election and predestination. God the Father has elected those who he's elected to give to Christ, and he loves those. Yeah, he knows we're sinners, but he, we are redeemed and justified through Christ. And so he loves those. And he's not out of alignment in betraying his son by loving those he knows who are going to reject him. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make any sense. How does it work? I mean, did the Father draw those who would reject Christ too? Did he draw... You know, the father's drawing people to Christ. Did he draw the people who who rejected him too? And if that's the case, what does that say about the father? How does, how does the father forgive someone he knows is going to fall away? There's another one. Like the father knows who's going to reject Christ, ultimately. And, you know, let's say there's a false convert. How can he forgive... Or, or love that person. If, if he knows that ultimately, really, they're going to reject Christ. They never really had Christ. It's not authentic. Like the father wouldn't do that. That's not reflective of God and how he's worked through history. Here's another good one. So the son died for our sins. Now, this is a controversial topic. It's called limited atonement. I think of it as completed atonement, but either way, this is a lot. Of, this gets people stirred up. I don't see the problem with it. If you understand the election, or you understand the Trinity. There's no problem at all. But it gets people in a. It gets their emotions going. The Son died. If you have election, the Son died for who the Father gave him. He saved them. The atonement's complete. It's done. It's not. He didn't die for the people who the Father knew would reject him. Think about how how silly that would be. If Christ died for everybody in history, the Son died for more than who the Father chose and more than who the Spirit sealed. You got to think about this carefully. The Father chose some people. That's undeniable. And the Spirit sealed those people too. He didn't seal everybody and the Father didn't choose everybody. That's, nobody can disagree with that. But now, if you say that Christ died for everybody, that shows a misalignment. Did Christ die for more than who the Father chose? Were they, were they out of alignment? Like, Father's like, here, I'm going to choose and give you these guys. And Christ is like, no, I want to die for everybody. I'm, I'm not going to, I don't agree with that. Does that sound like what, what would happen? No, it not. Of course not. It's the silliest thing ever. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sealed people, in this case, the elect, You're saying that Christ died for, he chose to die for people who would reject him, who he knew would reject him, and who who the Spirit didn't seal. That doesn't make any sense. It makes zero sense. Same thing with the Spirit. Did the Spirit seal less than who Christ died for? If Christ died for everybody, did the Father choose less than who Christ wanted to die for? the Spirit seal less than who Christ wanted to die for. That doesn't make sense. Why was the Spirit's efforts limited? Why were the Father's efforts limited if that's the case? If Christ wanted to die for everybody, then why why is there that mismatch? And first off, if that was the case, why is Christ determining that? It's the Father who determined it. Christ obeyed and the Spirit facilitated you see the order again. You got to understand the Trinity, because if you understand the Trinity, all of this stuff starts breaking down very quickly. Three separate wills in the Trinity, which is what Armenianism reduces to, is not biblical. It's not Christian. It's it doesn't make sense. First off, having three separate wills. There's no point in in anywhere in the Bible where Jesus did something, but the Father did something else. Like they were kind of. Mismatched, Or the spirit did something, but then, you know, he just kind of ran willy-nilly, but the father said, no, I want to do this. That doesn't happen. That's nonsense. <sighs> Why? Because it's one God. He's one God, three persons, but they're all of the same mind and will. They don't do things differently, especially something as grandiose as salvation. So, Armenianism teaches that Christ died for everybody, And that we can access that gift through our own free will. That doesn't match what scripture says. Christ died for the elect that God the Father gave him as a people for his own so that they could be atoned for and saved and made pure. And the Spirit cooperated with that and sanctified and sealed us, the elect, so that we could be presentable before Christ and live with him forever. Do you see how it just makes so much more sense with election? Election is predestination. And again, it's why? Because God is doing the work. If God does the work, it's permanent. It's forever. It's stable. It's it, God doesn't mess around. God works on infinite timelines. He works on eternity. God is doing the work. If God And God as a triune being is doing the work. This is is the most important part and why I decided to make a whole episode about this. It's not just Jesus doing the work. He did the work that he was assigned. This Holy Spirit does the work and the Father does the work. Why this is so important is because there's relationships going on and they have to all be in alignment. The only way that they're in alignment is through predestination and election. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, if you believe that Christ died for everybody, for the whole world, then you are essentially presenting a discordant view of the Trinity that's not supported at all in in Scripture. It doesn't work. Like I said, if if Christ died for everybody, it's out of alignment with what the Father and the Spirit did. Each of them has their own misalignments, but that's the point. And if you could lose your salvation, then you're basically saying your free will somehow counteracts all of the work that the Father did before time and during time, the the work that Christ did to earn you the guarantee of the Holy Spirit who is there with you right now, sanctifying you and, you know, guiding you and keeping you from stumbling. Your free will is stronger than all of that. This is why Arminianism is about pride. Again, I said this in the first episode. There's only one reason to defend this, and that's because of pride. You want to hang on to some sense of, I did something too. No, you didn't. That's the whole point. The whole point is that you did nothing. It's all on God, and that's why he gets all the glory. Imagine, though, if you somehow counteracted. (laughs) What does that say about God, too? I mean, if you if your free will can cancel all that action going on by the whole Trinity and somehow you can still end up losing your salvation, what does that say about God? What kind of God do you believe in that that your will is stronger than the entire Trinity's working together? That's nonsense. It's total nonsense. Now look, there's a challenge with this. And again, this is why the Trinity is so important. And we'll, we'll kind of finish off on this note, but A lot of people say, well, God, how can God predestine people to reject him like the reprobate? And how how is that for his glory? How can God glorify himself by predestining people to hell and and who was going to reject him? Okay. This is is actually an objection brought up by atheists a lot of times because they don't understand God and they don't understand the Trinity, of course. But what's happening here is a sleight of hand. They're looking at God as one person. We have one God, but he's three persons. He's tripersonal, And if you approach it from the lens of the Trinity, it all makes sense. God is not glorifying himself as one person by choosing people he's saving and choosing people he's going to pass on. The Father is glorifying the Son. By giving him a people for his own and giving him a kingdom, a throne, giving him the world. That's the Father's love for the Son. He's glorifying him. And by giving him a people who are his own, he's also not giving him people who are wicked. You see how that works? Unconditional election means, we'll, we'll talk about this in the next episode, but unconditional election means both predestining the people who are saved and predestining that you're not going to save certain people. Okay, but why is that? There's a purpose for that. And and the Son glorifies the Father through his obedience and and receiving the gift of the kingdom of the people that he's going to rule and, and they're going to love him, he's going to love them. It's all for the glory of the Father. But how does that all work? Well, evil is a big part of that. It is a huge part of that because without evil, God was not able to show his qualities of justice and of mercy and of love. If there was no evil in the world, Christ would, there would be no need for a savior. See how that works? So in his infinite genius, and we're going to, I'm not going to get into this all the way because this is a, a huge topic. We'll talk about this in a future episode in this series where we're going to handle frequently asked questions with the election, wrestling with the election where, you know, I just don't get why is there evil in the world, if there's predestination, you know, how does that work? We're going to answer all that. I'm going to do my best to answer it. But I think we're going to come up with some good answers. But for now, God is not glorifying himself as one person. God the Father is glorifying the Son by giving him a people of his own. In the process, he has also shown this people, the elect, the qualities of God. He's shown the people justice by destroying the wicked. And he's shown the elect mercy because all of us who are elect, it's like, man, that could have been me. And that thought that it could have been you eternally predestined to hell, if that doesn't fill you with gratitude and a desire to serve God every day to the the highest possible that you can, I don't know what will. But that's the point. You see the genius behind it? God used even evil for the good in creating the people that will love Jesus in the end and will have a perfect kingdom. There are many steps to that. The elect are being tested. We're being tested by evil and suffering. Evil will serve a purpose. So God isn't glorifying himself in a nonsensical way. God the Father is glorifying the Son. The Son is, endured evil, endured the cross so that he could glorify the Father in accepting the gift and redeeming the people he's been he's been given. Do you see how this works? How this nuanced view makes all the difference? When you say, oh well, predestination, you know, God's just glorifying himself by predestining people who are going to reject him. You're talking about God as one person and it makes no sense. It's just like the way modalists who don't believe in a Trinity Or, you know, Muslims or anybody who doesn't believe in the Trinity says, well, you know, doesn't make sense that God became a baby and and then kind of sacrificed himself to himself. That's not what's happening. The Trinity is happening. God the Father is sacrificing his firstborn, his only son. Firstborn as in of all creation, not that Jesus created. Firstborn is a title, and it means preeminence, significance. But he's sacrificing his son, his only begotten son, so that we could be redeemed, the people that he chose to give his son. And his son is obeying and glorifying the Father through his obedience by completing that work. The Holy Spirit is glorifying the Son and the Father by helping us be sanctified in the evil world that we happen to be in and and convicting us both of righteousness and of you know, of maintaining our, our walk with Christ. All about it, it's it's the Trinity, they're glorifying one another. And it works because it's relational. That's why this argument is moot about God being immoral for predestining people who is going to reject him for his glory. Of course it's for his glory, but it's not the Father glorifying himself, it's the Father glorifying the Son. There's always somebody else that the glory is directed to. Do you see how that works? And why it's so important? Because it redeems God's character. And it answers this seeming conundrum. It's not a conundrum. The God Father glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies both. So it's... it's, You know, there's a relate... And that's why I made that study guide for you. So go download it. Danceoflife.com slash Trinity. It's free. Um, I'm not going to spam you. But... This is the deal, guys. God is doing the work, and God as a trinity, as a triune being, is doing the work. Before, during, and after, you are surrounded by God's work. There is no way that you can fail. This is the conviction of the Holy Spirit for us as believers of righteousness, the conviction of righteousness, that so many get caught up in, uh, in forgetting, really. Because look, if you believe you can lose your salvation... You are under the biggest stress of your life. That's not good news at all. You're not listening to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're not remembering that Christ's work was perfect. You're not studying enough to see that God's work is perfect. You're not trusting in God to redeem you. You're trusting in your own effort. As much as you want to dress it up with grace and all this other stuff, what it ultimately reduces to, if you can, if you can, if you I'm talking you can do something to lose your salvation. Then that means it is up to you to maintain your salvation. Through what? Through things that you do? You're just going to faith really hard? (laughs) Is that what it's about? No. No, it's not. And I hope this episode has been edifying for you to see that God is doing the work through and through. God is a trinity. And what does that all mean? It means eternal security. It means eternal security, our blessed hope, that regardless if we're like Moses, if we're like Thomas, if we're like Peter, if we're like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, if if we're like all the people who doubted God (laughs) and doubted themselves, who had David, who were at the lowest of the low, thinking that they're gone. They're just done. They're horrible. They're condemned that they remember and be convicted of righteousness and that we have assurance of salvation. Now, I want to talk about that assurance of salvation in the next episode when we're talking about predestination and election and reprobation, which is very controversial. So make sure you tune in. (laughs) Uh, Reprobation is God predestining, you know, evil in some sense predestining like people who aren't going to be saved. But it's it's a little more complicated than that. But there's beauty to it. It's all beautiful, man. It all makes sense if you just get over your pride. You know, Armenians try to defend their position with philosophy because you can't defend it with scripture. So they get into all these little philosophical quandaries like the one I just shared with you. Oh, well, God can't predestine people who are going to reject him for his own glory. That doesn't make sense. Well, first off, you're not thinking of God as a triune being. Second off, why does everything have to make sense to you for it to be the truth? The the Trinity doesn't make any sense to us in in our limited sensical world. If the Trinity could make sense, perfect sense, then it wouldn't be God. If self-existing made sense, it wouldn't be God. If omniscient, omnipotent, how does that work? I don't know. So... It's not about what makes sense. It's not about what you can finagle your philosophical mind around. It's what scripture says. And scripture is clear that God's doing the work. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that he is doing the work and we are not. (laughs) We are doing work in the sense that we're having experiences and participating in the plan, but you don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to work to maintain your salvation. You don't have to fear losing it. If you feel that you're afraid of losing your salvation that that is not from the Holy Spirit you know who that's from and so anybody who's teaching the idea that you can refute eternal security and you can lose your salvation you're not being guided by the Holy Spirit why because the Holy Spirit convicts you of righteousness the Holy Spirit would not be guiding you to teach something like that and I'm gonna end on that so God bless Have a great rest of your week or whenever you happen to be listening to this or seeing it. We'll see you next time in part four. We'll talk about predestination, reprobation, eternal security, all kinds of good stuff. So we'll see you later.